Um, I got to officiate Chris and Katie Power's wedding, and now I'm watching them dedicate two, two babies. It's just, that's awesome. Well done, you two. Interesting. Um, and and every, all of you. Um, that, uh, so, this is interesting. Um, we are, it's Father's Day, so we're going to do Song of Songs today. And we were a little light on the amount of children we normally dedicate, so we thought it would be perfect to do Song of Songs today. That's Bible humor for those of you who weren't raised in the church, you know. Uh, but you'll understand why here shortly. Um, I wasn't, I got to be honest, uh, today comes with like a PG morning. I wasn't quite sure how to handle this book um, in an equipagraded environment. And so I thought about all the innuendos I could come up with and all the things I could say. But um, this is, um, wow, yeah, this is going to be a treat this morning. So um, if you don't know, we do equipagration, which means kids seven and up. You guys are in here with us and even kids younger if parents so choose. And um, it's like, how do you make a kid sheet a wrong song of songs? You know, I don't. I don't know, but we got a great kid stuff team for that, and wow, I, I <laughs> this will be fun. Um, so, yeah, happy Father's Day, dads, um, and that, that's, that's fun. We're actually reading through scripture this year in the year of biblical literacy. We're going from start to finish, and our reading has been in Song of Solomon, and, or Song of Songs. It's actually been known as Song of Solomon at some times. Uh, but we're currently in this. And Song of Songs is like saying um, it's the song of song, a- a.k.a. the greatest song ever is essentially what this is. So um, we're going to talk today about the greatest of songs today. And, um, yeah, so let's pray and then let's talk this through. Father, thank you so much for including something like this in Scripture. There is nothing else like it. And... Um, You have given really good gifts, um, and giving the gift of a husband and a wife to one another is the greatest of those gifts in so many ways. And Father, I pray today that we just um, lean into why it's in Scripture, its place there, and what it means for us to, um, to be a people who understand, including love poetry like this in Scripture. And it's in your son's name and his sons and daughters, we pray. Amen. All right. Song of Songs. Um, there's a lot I would want to say in, in this, and we get one day for this, so there's only so much I can say. But it's unique. This is unique in all of Old Testament literature, and that it's the only one that has the genre of love poetry. Um, but, like, this, <laughs> this letter, if you have not been reading with us through the year of biblical literacy, Start here. <laughs> this is great. You know, like, and, and some of the stuff we'll read today, you'll be like, oh, okay. Um, but this is, this is, uh, sometimes you're like, what do we do? Navels and bellies and breasts? Oh, my. Um, that is this book. All right? Um, and, and if you're like, did he just say that? It's in Song of Songs. I mean, like, I, you can't read through this without this. But it's been called and referred to Song of Solomon because there's a dedication at the beginning of it to Solomon. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that Solomon wrote it. In fact, most evidence would say that Solomon wasn't the writer of this. But in, in some ways, it was almost like satirically dedicated to him. Um, this is a love poem 
between a man and a woman. It's actually a love song. I mean, they're singing back and forth to one another. And then there's a chorus of friends that are kind of chiming in from time to time throughout the whole uh, poem. But um, this, this is an area where we know Solomon lacked incredible wisdom, right? Like, it, just, to, just to recount something from you and uh, like a summary of Solomon's life, here's 1 Kings 11. I just want you to see this, this thing where it talked about Solomon and his loves. Uh, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Remember, he had married Pharaoh's daughter. We talked about that a while back. And so then it lists it. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Just don't, don't leave this yet. Just stay. Go back. Go back. Go back. I just wanted to point this out. It, it's all plural. <laughs> like, in, 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 rather than trying to list all the women, it just lists people groups. <laughs> <laughs> just, just like, okay, I mean, like, look at this. He's, he had all the ladies, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, and then it keeps going. Just this is Solomon's, how he handled this part of his life. They're, they were from nations without which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. It's like some sister wives there. And his wives led him astray. Last thing I want you to see from this beginning. Is that, that's it. His wives led him astray. So here's here's this thing. Song of Songs is in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And I think part of it is because If there was ever an area where Solomon the wise lacked wisdom, it was this area of his life, and it's what caused him to be led astray. And in fact, it's also what caused the kingdom to then rip in two. Because his wives led him astray and led his heart astray. And and we know that like it brought him down in some incredible ways. In fact, his father before him was also led away because of not handling this area with wisdom. Last week, we talked about Proverbs and its place in Scripture and said, really, what Proverbs is trying just to get us to do is not ask the question, is this right or is this wrong? Proverbs is trying to get you to ask a completely different question. And this is the genius of Scripture and the, the writers, the sages of, that writ, wrote this. Is they're trying to get you to ask the question, is this wise? Because there's a lot of things that are like right, permissible, or it's not even right or wrong, but it's not wise. Right? It's just not. Is it wrong to go to the house without sunscreen on if you're as pasty as I am? No, it's not wrong, but it's not wise either. There's things that have been put in place in this area of of sexuality. This is an area where we lack wisdom in some big ways. I just want to give you a second here just to ponder. The reason we miss it is that we've been sold a bill. I want you to think about it because I think we just miss it. And the reason we miss it is that we've been sold a bill of goods by our culture. But I want you to think about this area and how you've seen it play out in the lives of other people around you. And I want you to think for just a minute about how destructive this area has been, not just in Solomon's life. I want you to think about the destruction this has rained down in your life or in other people's lives because it was mishandled. All right? So just take a minute. Just sit and think about this. Think about what's happened because... People did not handle this area with wisdom, okay? Just take a minute and think about that.
I think the lie we believe is that, oh, yeah, that happened to them. That's not going to happen to me. Like, they, they did these things, but it's not going to happen to me. Listen, the reason this belongs in Scripture, and people have debated whether this letter, this book even belonged in Scripture. And it, in this song, thus giving it a legendary fun um, theologian, a guy named Walter Brueggemann, said, if Solomon is evoked in this song, thus giving it a legendary flavor, it is not so much Solomon the wise that the author is calling to the bar, a Solomon the Don Juan with his thousand wives, Solomon appears as one who's known love in all its forms. Like, it seems as though Solomon was the one who had known love and riches and wealth and women, but in many ways, he didn't know what the Song of Songs is talking about today, and what you get to see and what you get to understand. Now, um, here's, here's one more question I have for you on this. How... As we, as we launch into this, how do you define love and dating, romance, marriage? How, how do you define that? Like to you, what is marriage? And what is that whole thing that leads up to marriage? How would you define that thing, right? Like what, what is that? Because in many ways, I think our culture has sold us on a bill of goods about what this is. And, and we're raised just thinking, this is just what it is. Like, like we, we go through life, and we're seeking out love, and it, you're, the goal is basically to end up with somebody that you are completely compatible with, that, that we are, are like, we just, we meet each other in the perfect places, and we're like, so sometimes the, the thing goes that we're complete opposites, so where one person lacks, the other person meets, and we just, we fit together like a puzzle piece, and it's perfect, and other people say, no, 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 it's not, it's not, it's, it's not the opposites, it's that and we like everything the same, it's just we come together and ultimately defined by compatibility. Like, we just like all the same things, and we just are into all the same stuff, and like, when we kiss, whew, man, it was like dynamite and electric, and there was this and that, and this happened, and we just, we just fit together. And in fact, people in our culture say, yeah, really, you should keep, you should go all the way through that whole process. Again, I'm trying to like equipagrate this thing, but you should go all the way through to the end of this so you know if you're still compatible in all areas, because you don't want to end up with somebody for life that you're not compatible with, so you just go at it. And with as many people as you can, and then you kind of figure out, like, what's what, and am I liking this? And, like, when we watch it on TV, like, you see all this stuff, and this guy's with this girl, and that girl's with that guy, and then that girl's with that girl, and that guy, and that person, and that thing, and then it's just, and there's no repercussions for any of it. You get to, like, three episodes later, and everybody's still friends. In fact, that's what we call the TV show. Friends. Guys, do you understand that's a lie? Do you understand life doesn't work that way? Do you understand when this stuff that they portray in TV and movies happens in real life, what happens is hatred, death, or feeling like you want to die, embarrassment, shame, guilt, Hating other people, ripping apart marriages, divorce, all the, that's what comes when we play this out in real life. And you want to know what the biggest shame of the whole thing is? The people selling us the bigger goods are the same people who trade their wives and husbands like they turn around and trade their underwear. I mean, it's, it's what happens. And so they live it out in their lives and then they portray it in fiction and then we eat it up and think that's what romance and dating and marriage is all about. And for many of us, it didn't start with like, TV shows, it started with Disney. 
and we were sold this like bill of goods and we just bought into it. And yet, how do you define marriage? How do you define that whole process of getting married and romance and dating and all of that stuff and what it's for? And, and just here's the follow-up to this. How much has that definition, your understanding of romance and dating and marriage, been built by the culture you live in or by the God that you serve? Which one has informed your definition more? Do you feel like you have a good or bad marriage based on what you come to in this word or based on what you see when you watch an episode on Netflix of some whatever show? Or whatever movie. Do you, are you, do you feel like your marriage is a failure because it doesn't look like the latest Nicholas Sparks book? Right? Yet we come to this, and we're going to see when we come to Scripture, you see a definition of marriage. But guys, listen, I'm telling you, if you follow this, it doesn't guarantee success. It doesn't say, oh, and everything's going to work out. But I promise you, it brings you into what we were intended for. The Bible gives, in fact, it's so... Marriage is so important to the biblical narrative that you actually get it on page two of the Bible. It's that important. This whole thing where you have this garden scene of this man and this woman together there in the garden, naked and unashamed. And you get your first definition of marriage right there. Page, page two. That's how important this thing of marriage is to the scriptural story. It says this, therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what's marriage in the Bible? One man, one woman, one flesh. That's it. That's, that's marriage. One man, one woman, one flesh. And there's this unity that comes together to create oneness. And so marriage in Scripture is about oneness. In fact, this idea of oneness is so central that it's the central thing of the Old Testament, the central like um, uh, scripture text. It's in Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this thing of marriage corresponds to that, and there's this idea of oneness and unity that's being, tried, that, that's being brought into this. And yet, we do not, in our culture, have an understanding of one. Like, that, that's not us, right? We have an understanding of, let me try this guy, then that guy, then that guy, then that guy, then that girl, then that guy, then that guy, then that girl. I'm just going to try it all. And if I finally figure out, oh, man, it was that guy way back here I fit with best. And so then you go back and you're like, okay, can, I, can we date? No, okay, you're already married, so we can't. That's how we handle it so often. And yet this love poem plays out this idea of one man and one woman and one flesh in a powerful way. And it talks about love. And so, in fact, as the song goes on and on and on, and so you, gotta, you have to read through the whole thing to get it, and we can't read through the whole thing, but I wanted to pull out some things so that when you read it, you can see it. There is a refrain that the woman has in the whole thing. In fact, it's repeated three times throughout this song. She keeps coming back to this refrain, back and back and back. And here's her refrain. It's in 2.16, 6.3, and 7.10. She says, my beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. But you can let your imagination go there. But I am my beloved. You're supposed to. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. I am my beloved, and if you're wondering what lilies were, and his desire is for me, 
there is this incredible thing where she is saying, I'm his and he's mine and there is no other. And there is a thing that we know in our bones because you were made in the image of God and you know this is true, that your heart longs for that one Now, this is not to say that there is a one and only someone out there for you that you have to just weed through the right people and figure out that one and only someone. That's just a Christian version of this other thing that's played out in culture. There's not this one and only someone that you have to find and navigate and get the right path and just get to that right person. If that were true, like we're in trouble because if one person marries the wrong person, then the whole thing gets screwed up in like 100 years, right? I mean, it just doesn't work. Try the math on that. But, but here's, here, here's how, and then, then they create a kid, and now all of a sudden that kid wasn't even supposed to exist, right? I, I don't even know how that works. But, like, th- there is this, that's not true. But there is this thing when you find that person and you commit yourself, that is your one and only someone. And there is a one and only that we are to pursue. And she exalts in this and sings over this, and it's her refrain over and over and over again. And you may be wondering then, what is the man's refrain? He has none in this song. There's nothing he repeats other than your body. Wow. Your body. Your eyes, your arms, your legs, your hmm, your all of it. Wow. He just keeps coming back. You read the song. He just keeps coming back. She says these beautiful words and he goes, and your body. That's, that's what happens. Over and over and over again. And one time, there is one time, it's in chapter 4. He says, you come down from the mountains of Lebanon, from the hills of Hermon. Like, this talks about she's descending from the mountains, which are the high places. That's where the gods lived. She's like, he's going, you're a goddess. (laughs) It's literally what he's telling her at one point in time. And, I mean, before John Mayer ever said it, he, he said it. So, he who has ears, let him hear. But... The wisdom in this is incredible. That you have this understanding of this, these two, and there's this pursuit back and forth between the two. And, and they like come together, and then they miss each other, and, they come, and there's this pursuit, this constant pursuit. This one man, one woman, in this pursuit with one another that you see. Yet there is this incredible wisdom that takes place, and it's kind of at the end of Song of Solomon where, where it speaks of this one and only someone and how this works out. And I just wanted you to see the end. This is 8, 6, and 7. When it talks about love, and, and this is why I think it was so set in contrast against Solomon. And why I think the, the theologians who say this was satirically dedicated to him. I, I think this is where we get to the wisdom of this. It says, set me, the woman is speaking, set me as a seal upon your heart as a seal upon your arm. Just saying, like, seal me, like, like this is a covenant that's being made. For, look at this. For love is strong as death. And jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. She is describing what happens in love. And this is so true. That love, go, go back to six. Love is as strong as death. Hey, this is why some of you, you gave yourself away to that guy or that girl and then you broke up and you thought you wanted to die. That's what she's saying. 
It's like death. Because it's, love is supposed to be that way if, if it's ripped away from you. Why would we continue to do that to ourselves? And giving ourselves away and taking a force as powerful as death and putting ourselves in and out of it. To the point where our hearts just go numb. Like somebody who's seen death so much that it doesn't even affect us anymore. And she goes, no, there's a jealousy in it and a flash of fire, and it's the very flame of God. Do you understand that this thing of love is God's very flame put in you, is what she's saying. That you as a human being pursuing another human being and wanting to be pursued by them, I am his and he is mine. That's incredible. So seven says many which you were created for and designed for. And so it's incredible. So seven says many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it out. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Which is saying like this thing is like almost, it's unquenchable. Like love pursued, you're never quite meeting it. Which means your marriage will never fully quench this thing that you're seeking after. You're never going to, even in marriage, get to the point where you're like, satisfied, you can go home. No, that is the bringing together of two human beings. And something that is unquenchable. And yet it says this, that if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. It's like, who is the richest guy? Solomon, right? So before the Beatles ever said, can't buy me love, it's right here. You can't buy love. It can only be given. And to offer it, hey, I'll pay you. It's just to turn this into a cheap version of itself in the form of prostitution or worse. You can't buy this thing that's to be between one man and one woman and then this idea of one flesh. And so I wanted you to see what happens here. The whole song is built on what's called a chiastic outline. And the Jewish writers love to frame their books in a chiastic outline. Now, okay, if you checked out because I was boring you and I didn't have enough, you know, good stuff in there, this is something you're going to want to see. A chiastic outline works where the front end of the book and the back end of the book parallel each other. And it all builds to a point in the middle. And this is where the whole thing is driving to, okay? So that means that it's mirrored. So look, 1, 1 through 4, it talks about taking her away. At the very end of the book, eight fourteen, it says, come away. 1, 5 to 7, my own vineyard. 8, 10 and 12, my own vineyard. House, house. This phrase that's repeated, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And in 2, it's also an 8. Fragrance, come, my darling, blossoming. Same thing right there in 7, 9 to 14. My lover is mine, my lover is mine. Daughters of Jerusalem, daughters of Jerusalem. Myrrh, spices, honey, honeycomb, wine, milk. Both repeated. It parallels each other from the end of the book and the beginning of the book. All coming right into the middle of the book. And so the whole letter of Song of Songs, or, or the song, that's this poem that's there, builds right into the middle, which is the very end of four and the very beginning of five. Which shows that the people who invented the number system had no clue what was going on here. They just, you know, they just threw numbers in at times. We're like, why did that chapter break there? I don't know. They didn't know what they were doing all the time. But it's this entrance into the garden. And it's, she says, it's 
him coming into his garden, and she refers to herself as his garden. And then he refers to her as my garden. And so there's this idea that the garden was this this moment with her, and she is this garden. Gosh, you got to understand this. Women, I, I, ladies, I, I, I want you to understand that like time and time and time again in Scripture, it is elevating you to your rightful place of who you're supposed to be as a beautiful work and creation of God. And our culture has sold us a bill of goods that's convinced us at times to just say, oh no, like, like we can just trade you out and trade you out and trade you one boyfriend after the other and figure out what's, and, and that it's just one guy after another at times. One boyfriend after the other. And you're not treated with the love and the respect and the care that you should be guarded with. And we've created this culture of free love at times and call it love and it's not, it's anything but because you're used and discarded. And that is not what this is. This is an incredible picture of love and, and where the middle of the book centers into this thing of this garden. And here's, here's the scene. I, I want you to see it, 4.16 to 5.1. I'm going to read you what said. This is the very center of the book, okay? Is where it all comes to a head. He's speaking. He says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. And she responds, Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. He says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my... By the way, this isn't really his sister, okay? It's just a term of endearment. You need to know that. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey, and I drank my wine with my milk. <laughs> like, if you're not used to, like, ancient Near Eastern poetry, like, just let me interpret this for you really quick. Yep. That right there. All right. Trying to hold back and steal it. My soul. Oh, we're keeping it. Oh, wow. All right. And if you feel like I feel, baby, then come, come on. on. Come on. Everybody. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Um, look. This is an utter celebration of the most intimate of moments, right there. And the whole book builds to that. This literally is the point that it's bringing us to, and it's a celebration of human embodiment of what God has done and given. And that it's not, it's not saying, the what's incredible, the flesh isn't bad. In fact, it's, it's so good. And this thing is building all the way to this, this poem between this man and this woman coming together finally to this moment. And it's what it's leading us to. And it's important that we understand it is a gift of God for this one man, one woman, one flesh coming together as one. And it's a beautiful thing. 
And we should not exchange that for a cultural lie. We should be more informed by what we read here, this pursuit of each other, seeking after one another, than something that would get us to exchanging each other at times. Now, I want you to understand, like, these writers are brilliant and smart, and they know what they're doing. He builds this whole climax of the book to this garden moment. He's not dumb. The writer knows what's going on here. That it's, it's essentially a return to the garden of Genesis 2. That this is, this is what we were created to do. Naked and unashamed. Fully embodying what it means to be human. Experiencing pleasure and delight and joy with another person. That this is the things of God. But it's not meant to be just shared around and spread around. It's meant to be this moment where you pursue one another and come together. And so that, that means a few things. It means like, one, if you're not married, don't do this. You're compromising this, this pursuit that is yours and you're settling for a cheap version. If you're thrilled by the pursuit of a guy for you and you're just, you're starting to date and you love that pursuit, there's something true about that. You're supposed to be thrilled by the pursuit. You're supposed to love that. You're supposed to enjoy that. But not when it's one guy after another guy after another guy after another guy after another guy. Guys, same thing for you. You're not supposed to just keep pursuing one girl after another girl after another girl thinking that you're some rescuer. Who, then you turn into the one that's the abuser because you love them and leave them and, and just create more damage and havoc. It's supposed to be this coming together. And so this is why throughout Song of Songs, there's this refrain again from the, the woman. Another part of the repetition in the book is do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Like wait for that moment where you're going to pursue that one person and they're going to pursue you and there is no giving up. And some of you are like, well, there goes my dating life. And I, and I get it. And it's, it's probably easy for me as a married guy. I've been married 20 years now. It's awesome. To stand up and say some of that. Because I don't understand maybe everything you're going through at the moment, but what I can point you to is the wisdom of Scripture that says you're intended for one person. Pursue that and want to be pursued by that. The other thing is to say that if you're married and you've stopped pursuing one another, man, you're missing out. You're missing out on the joy of what God has given you and intended and put into Scripture. It's there. Your wife, she's a garden. Wives understand that. And there is a beauty there to pursue with one another. Don't stop pursuing one another. People don't know what to do with this book at all. They, they, they're not quite sure how to handle this in the Old Testament. In fact, at one point in time, people question whether it even should be in the Old Testament at all. There's one rabbi 
told people, this guy named Rabbi Akiba, he said, stop singing it in your pubs and in your songs, because they would sing it as like drinking songs. They said, stop doing it. And, he, and they said to him, so are you saying like this is a, the wrong thing to sing and the wrong thing to be about? And he said, no, <laughs> quite the opposite. He said, the whole world is not worth the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. All the writings are holy, and the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. And he said, this is so special and so precious and so important. Now, here's, as, as we end, and Michael's going to come up, and man, I just would keep going on this, but I, I just want to say this. The writer is taking us back to the garden and back into this garden scene where there was this picture of this man and woman as we were intended to live as human beings, naked and unashamed, together as one. And we get to reenact that and enact that over and over. Song of Solomon is not something, or Song of Songs is not something simply meant to be understood. It's something that's meant to be enacted. And you are playing this out in your lives every single day. Because we as human beings, we are either plans of love and desire. We can't get away from it. And you are either playing out the story of Song of Songs of one man, one woman, one flesh, or you're playing out the satire of Solomon, a thousand wives, and pursuing something different. Now, this love poem was not written as allegory. It it, it was not written to be an allegory. It was written as a love poem. But simply by its inclusion in Scripture, we can't help but start to see and understand that there is also a beautiful way of seeing God's pursuit of us in this through Christ. That that we would be able to say with the woman, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Because For God, through Jesus, his pursuit was of you. In fact, in in rabbinic tradition, they would start to say that the Song of Songs was the conversation back and forth between God and Israel when they came to Mount Sinai. This was the conversation they held where he played the part of the lover and they the part of the woman, the beloved, and that they would say to him, I am yours and you are mine and your desire is for me. Come, come and feast among the lilies. That is how they saw God's pursuit of them. And so I want you to understand. We can can see this and understand this in the same exact way. That why the one man, one woman, one flesh thing is so important is because it's playing out a larger story. A story that there is one God who has come to pursue one humanity. And he is not leaving you and he is not forsaking you. And marriage vows between a husband and wife simply mimic those words right there. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you are his words to us. And I will come for you and you will be mine, and I will be yours. It's how the very end of the Bible states it. 
The dwelling place of God is now with man. He will be their God and they will be his people. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. While himself to them. And so of their souls that has come for them. And has united himself to them. And so when we play that out, one man, one woman, one flesh, we are painting a picture to the world of who God is. But when we don't play that out, we are telling the world a lie. Please, please be a part of the pursuit. Please don't settle for something cheap. Come for what he's created you for. And so, I hope you read this song. I hope you feast in it. I hope you delight in it. I hope you, as women, would read this and see your incredible worth that the Bible gives to you. And men, that you would also see the incredible worth you have and the challenge you have to be one who pursues pursues well. And so I'd like to invite you to a time of communion. If you'd stand with me. This communion is a reminder of his pursuit of you. That love does not come cheaply, that love comes costly. And that if you want to love anything, it will cost you and it will hurt you. And he has loved you to the end, to the uttermost. And he's given his life for you. And so we take this cracker and dip it in the cup each and every week as a reminder of that pursuit that he had of us. And I've gotten a lot of pushback lately on, on this idea that like, why... Why do you talk about our worth so much? And I'm just going to explain this really quick. I just feel like I need to. Why don't you talk about God's worth? Why do you talk about our worth? And gosh, I hope I don't ever not talk about God's worth. But time and 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 time again, the Bible is showing it's his mission and his pursuit of you. This book is not about you pursuing him. It's about him pursuing you and the incredible worth that he saw in you and that you were worth coming for and that the lie is not that God doesn't believe what we think about him. The lie is what we believe God thinks about us and that is a lie from the pit of hell that has to go away and these things, they're two sides of the same coin that when you're to talk about your worth, you're talking about what he created The elevation of your worth is an elevation of the creator itself. You can't miss that. God, guys, he loves you so much and he's pursued you. and He's given his life for you and it's something we come back to each and every week. And for you to deny your worth is to deny your father. We settle for so much less than what he created us for. We need to stop doing that and see and understand the incredible value and worth we have in him. Because it comes from him. Because he's your maker and he is the lover of your soul and the one who's pursued you. So I hope, I pray you come this morning 
to take communion, understanding that pursuit and that great love he has for you. And there's people on the sides who would love to pray for you. And maybe it's just a lie you believe and you don't think you are worth pursuing. And you are. And may Song of Songs be a constant reminder to you of that pursuit of you, that love of you, that delight in you, and that consummation that he wants with you in that garden of his love. Communion's open.